Hi, everybody. This is Tony Kahn, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston. The Zimmerman House is one of just a few houses in all of New England that were designed by the great American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Today's Morning Story, though, is not going to be about the Zimmerman House, but about the Zimmerman home. Not about the uh, building's shape, but about how, as a home, it helped shape some human lives. In particular, the life of our storyteller today, Kevin Jankowski. We call his story, That's Where You're Supposed to Be. My mom was a homemaker and my father a state highway worker. And we lived in this trailer on a farm up in Londonderry, New Hampshire. My dad hadn't graduated from high school and would take on odd jobs to support the family and get us by. He got this job with this family named the Zimmerman family up in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, cutting trees. Dad became kind of the unofficial groundskeeper for the Zimmerman house, you know, mow the lawn and rake the leaves and trim the bushes. During the winter, when the ice would jam up on the terracotta tiles, chip the ice. Sometimes our whole family, even my brother and later my sister, would go up and work on the house. Mrs. Zimmerman would always have me come into the house and show me um, postcards and books on art. I always remember the living room, the long couch, probably at least 12 feet long. They collected ceramics and blown glass, these abstract sculptures and abstract paintings. It turned out that this incredible house was one of the only Frank Lloyd Wright houses in New England. Along the fireplace, Wright had removed every other brick, and within the bricks he had put chunks of glass, and behind these chunks of colored glass there were lights, and every so often, Mrs. Zimmerman would turn the light on, and it would light up like a Christmas tree to entertain me as a child. Dad, like a lot of dads, he had said, oh, well, my kid draws. And Mrs. Zimmerman said, well, have him come up and bring some drawings. And they were just kid drawings. But she clearly connected with them. And oddly and weirdly, from that point on, she was patron for this child surrounded by all of their artwork, watching my family laboring outside. Mrs. Zimmerman got me and our family a subscription to National Geographic. I loved pouring through that magazine and and learning about the world. She would send me for art lessons at the Courier Gallery of Art. Just amazing. Later, when I was in high school, she sent me to the pre-college program at Rhode Island School of Design. It, It was like the final catalyst that I needed to to really believe that I could go to college for the arts. It made me a real artist. And this was in a family where nobody directly had even gone to college. I would go up to see Mrs. Zimmerman throughout my whole life, and whether I was in high school or in college, and I would give her updates on, on art projects and things that I was doing and the garden that I was growing. Around that time, Mr. Zimmerman had Parkinson's disease, and it crippled him dramatically. But if you talked to her about art, Mrs. Zimmerman would absolutely sparkle. She had been trained as a nurse. So as her husband became very sick, um, she was absolutely determined that she was going to care for him in the house and not have him in a nursing home or have him in a hospital. She had placed the bed, this medical bed with 
with all of this equipment around it and, and the things that he needed, in the middle of the living room, there was this bed and this man completely confined to it, literally framed by the architecture of the room that he loved so much, surrounded by the art that they had collected over all these years. The two of them were inseparable. My freshman year, Mr. Zimmerman passed away, and it didn't seem too long afterwards that, that Mrs. Zimmerman passed away. Their love was, in my opinion, perfect and often completely unspoken, and I know she died of a, of a broken heart. What they loved the most was this house by Frank Lloyd Wright, and they loved art, and they nurtured me through what they loved best. I, I remember one day asking my mom and dad if this bothered them, that I was in the house enjoying this exposure to art, and here they were outside. I remember mom just saying, that's where you're supposed to be. I ended up freelancing for, for several years. I now am assistant director of career programs at Rhode Island School Design to help and guide people and to connect with other artists. It's what Mrs. Zimmerman did for me um, in those early years. I hope she knows that one person really can make a huge difference in a person's life. I hope in some ways I have too. That was today's morning story from Kevin Jankowski. That's where you're supposed to be. I'm here in the studio with Gary Mott. Gary, what did you think of that? It brought up a lot of things for me. You know, there's a small army of people that have, you know, directly influenced my my path. Of all those people, how many of them do you think were people whom you really appreciated or even liked at the time? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would say a small percentage very kindly told me I wasn't good enough. Oh, interesting. A hunk of the truth. Yeah. When I was getting into radio, mm -hmm. I really thought commercial radio. Mm -hmm. That's where I belong. I, Talk about a savage <laughs> environment. <laughs> I'm going to be a classic rock DJ. Got my first big break. Yeah. The program director at this station that I worked at said, you know, why don't you take the overnight shift uh -huh. on a weekend? I said, yes, this is it. Or did he think nobody was going to be listening? <laughs> <laughs> well, th that's what he assumed. Uh -huh. He listened to it and said, yeah. And I thought, yes, I've arrived. <laughs> and I did it a second time. <laughs> and he looked up at me and said, close the door. <laughs> Phrases you don't particularly want to hear in the course of your career. So so we sat down and he said, you know, Gary, I just don't think you're ready for this. Were it not for that mm. conversation, I might be still spinning my wheels trying to 
pursue a dream that I shouldn't be pursuing. I can look back and I can think of people at important crossroads that I wouldn't particularly want to ever see again. And yet, you know, they were the ones who taught me something. They let me know what I was capable of and what I wasn't capable of. And they inspired me either by giving me a fellow feeling or by making me angry enough to prove them wrong, you know. Yeah. The path to sitting here with you has been rather zigzaggy. Fasten your seatbelt, Gary. <laughs> that's probably the way it's going to be for the next 20 years or so. You know, there was a producer here at WGBH who would come into the room every other day and say, read and weep. And then he would present me with a problem that I would say, I can't handle this. I can't do it. I hate this. I'm going to leave. And I would solve the problem, and I would be just that much more aware of who I was, what I could do, and how good it felt. You'd you'd be emboldened by it. You know, I really need to acknowledge some of these people Hmm. Mm -hmm. who maybe I haven't before. Well, I got to admit that a few of these people that I mentioned, I still wouldn't call them back. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope hope that in their hearts they know. A a huge influence, certainly, that that, that for tons of people we don't know that we did a story about not so long ago was Elvis Presley. Ken Bader told us a story about his private relationship with Elvis. And mm-hmm. by gum, we got a lot of letters from people who wanted <laughs> to tell us about their private Elvises. You have one of them there. You, should, yeah. uh, you want to read that one first? This, this great letter from our, our good buddy Cindy in Reston, Virginia. She says, Tony, I just finished listening to My Private Elvis. Let me tell you, the words you used to describe the impact Elvis's performance had on you deep in my crocodile brain <laughs> and like heroin. <laughs> I take your pardon. Did, did you say that? I don't recall. These, these words were exactly the words I've been searching for to describe my own Elvis memory. My first memory of anything ever, actually. Really? It was 1967. I was five years old. And my mom had packed the five of us kids, ages three through nine, into her flower power stickered (laughs) green VW bug to take us to a matinee. I don't know what the movie was, only that it starred Elvis. Which was no big whoop. The name Elvis didn't register with me yet as anything special. I was just happy to be going to the movies. We were very good kids, raised in a loving but very strict yes ma'am, yes sir home. So my reaction as we left the theater was a shock to everyone. I was an absolute mess. (laughs) I recall to this day the deep, yes, crocodile brain, emotional reaction I had to Elvis's beauty, his voice, his Elvisness. I remember being brokenhearted because I knew he was so magical, so otherworldly, that I would never be able to have him, know him, who knows what. I just understood that this was a perfect, pure thing, and I couldn't stop crying for hours. My mom didn't know what to do with me. She was so at a loss as to what was going on that I didn't even get reprimanded, just gently put down for a nap. Wow. Elvis will never see his equal. Cindy, what an eloquent letter. And, and uh, yes, I agree completely. Here's another one that we got from uh, a young woman named Christina who lives uh, in the Boston area. She writes, I finally got to update my podcast, and I listened to my own private Elvis this morning on the train. It brought me back to a time when Elvis was the only music I listened to. 
From the ages of 8 to 10 years old, I was a diehard of Elvis. I don't remember exactly how I got into him, but Elvis was my numero uno. I practiced singing like him in front of the mirror. Not to toot my own horn, but I sounded like him. Heartbreak Hotel was my specialty. <laughs> I truly believed I could be an Elvis impersonator. I never told anyone this. I remember one day in the fourth or fifth grade, a classmate named Shannon announced that she was going to be an Elvis impersonator. She was really obnoxious and hungry for attention. I have a feeling she wasn't hugged enough at home. Back then, I just thought she sucked. <laughs> anyway, I remember her prancing around the classroom and singing a couple of lines from Hound Dog. I could tell she didn't even know all the words because she would stop after crying all the time. <laughs> And she sounded nothing like him. There was no inflection, no depth. It was infuriating. She was stealing my idea, and I couldn't even say that because no one knew it was my idea to begin with. The other kids would have said I was copying Shannon. Oh, what a dilemma. <laughs> so I never said a word. I just bit my tongue and tried to forget about it. I told myself that she wouldn't keep up with it. She was a flake. As it turns out, I was half right. She would do one of her half-hearted, silly performances every now and then, and a jealous pang would go through me every time other kids laughed. It was unfair. But she stopped after a few months, and I, too, began to let go of that dream. I still sung his songs in my room, but I realized that psychiatry was my true calling. <laughs> <laughs> Hope all is well. Best, Christina. Christina, oh. you probably would have been great in either career, but <laughs> I'm sorry you had to choose only one. Oh, she writes, P.S.? Guess what Shannon is. <laughs> you want to take a guess what, what Shannon grew up to be? Um, a psychiatrist? No, uh, no. I found out a few months ago that Shannon is an MBTA cop now. <laughs> On the public transportation system here in Boston. Elvis admires filled many important places in society. Long after his death, a great benefactor to the world. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> Do keep your letters coming. We'd love to know more about your own private Elvis. Absolutely. And uh, we recently got a, uh, a couple of contributions yes, from did. a couple of uh, lovely benefactors. One gentleman, Hugo Flores, from... San Diego uh -huh. wrote in to say that he uh, had supported WGBH before, but he was delighted to find out that he could contribute via our webpage and have the funds go directly to Morning Stories. We would be glad to be targeted by you anytime, anyway. In fact, if you feel you don't have enough money, we're even willing to send you a starter penny. <laughs> <laughs> for a contribution, no matter what size you want. Just take that penny, put it in a glass of water, or, you know, put a little miracle grow around it, see and, what and happens. And watch and it grow, yeah. Send us the results. <laughs> Anything would be welcome. <laughs> WGBH.org slash Morning Stories. Listen. We've got video there. We've got stories. And please send us an email at morningstories at WGBH.org. And we'll be back with another Morning Story real soon. So take care. You know I can be found Sitting here all alone If you can't come around Please, please tell the phone Don't be cruel To the heart that's true Baby, if I made you mad For something I might have said Please don't forget my past The future looks bright ahead Don't be cruel 